0: welcome to the people data for good podcast thank you for joining today's conversation was truly exceptional i spoke with aj herman the head of workforce planning at cleveland clinic he states explicitly that their intention is to be a leading practice company actually the best in the healthcare field at doing workforce planning and they have taken steps to in fact do that at least in my view Uh, So this listen is certainly, in my view, uh, worth your time. Uh, His background from the CIA to consulting uh, to building the capability uh, at a division in Nestle is certainly inspiring lot to learn, and his humility also comes across in that there's still much to do in this discipline. So thank you for being here. And before we jump in, I have to say this, is that I come across really scratchy. I do not know how it happened. I apologize in advance. Hopefully it's tolerable. AJ, the more important voice here, comes through loud and clear. So uh, please focus on that. And
1: again, hope you enjoy
2: Hi, welcome back. I'm here with AJ Herman of Cleveland Clinic. AJ, how you doing, sir?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for the invite, Al. Oh, of, of
2: course. I mean, we had our Pathow Live discussion, and I was fascinated. We had great feedback from our community. And so I wanted to get deeper into your personal story, you know, how you got to where you are and leading your course planning at Cleveland Clinic, and just some of the ideas about how we're going to evolve in this space, which obviously has become increasingly important with the pandemic, but even as we, and I'm not going to say exit, particularly given the profession that you're in. You know how we're going to, again, keep this momentum up so we can wisely design the future of work. So with that, you might introduce yourself a little bit and uh, you know, what your role there is at Cleveland Clinic.
1: Sure. I'm AJ Herman. Uh, my title is Executive Director of Strategic Workforce Planning. Um, and I founded the program here at Cleveland Clinic about a year and a half ago.
2: Well, you, know, you have a background yeah, in consulting, you've done a lot over the course of your career. So before we get into your thoughts and ideas around workforce planning, specifically in healthcare. How did you get into this profession? What's your story? What's your educational background? you mind uh, sharing a bit about that?
1: Sure, I'm happy to. It's not a straight line from, as I imagine, a lot of people who do this type of work. Uh, I didn't study this in college or anything like that. Um, My educational background is political science um, and public policy. Um, I grew up in Buffalo, New York in a military family, and I wanted to um, get the D.C. experience I was very interested in politics and especially international affairs. So I moved to Washington, D.C. to go to the George Washington University, uh, studied there, um, got my B.A. in uh, political science with an emphasis in public policy uh, and focused a lot of my time on environmental um, policy and and, and uh, environmental justice and things of that nature. But I got the politics bug. Um, I interned at Meet the Press. I was Tim Ruster's researcher. Uh, my sophomore year. And then I, I went to the Brookings institution, the, the think tank and did research there. But, um, I think the formative experience there was, um, my beginning of my sophomore year, uh, was nine 11, uh, 2001. uh, And I was right downtown in Washington and had a very obviously visceral experience. Um, so shortly, uh, after graduating college, um, my focus went to, uh, working for the government and seeing how I could contribute, uh, because I was obviously very influenced by nine 11 and little did I know it was going to influence the next 10 years of, of my life and my career. So shortly after school, um, I went central intelligence agency, um, as an analyst doing counterterrorism, Um, and I did that for, uh, as an analyst and then, um, as then a branch chief, uh, like a, a manager of analytic teams. And then as a trainer of analytic teams, um, covered everything from, uh, counterterrorism to the Arab spring, uh, revolutions, 2011 and 2012. Um, and then did some, uh, led some teams that did some of the heavier analytic processes forecasting and, uh, um, you know, some of the, the high, higher end analytics to try to predict future events. um, And then while I was at the agency, I went to Georgetown at night um, to get my master's in uh, uh, international affairs. So my educational background is very governmental, uh, international focused, um, but the early part of my career was heavily analytic. And um, not only did I use agency analytic tradecraft, but I taught it. Um, And then I, you know, was the manager of teams who used it. So I'm deeply steeped in their way of looking at analytic problems. Um, And when I say analysis, I mean qualitative analysis for the most part, some quant, but mostly it was trying to solve problems where there just wasn't data. Uh, And I think that if there's anything where I have an early hint of my future work, it was uh, here uh, at the agency where, where I Trying to answer questions that were impossible to answer for our policymakers, uh, where there is no data. There's no data on the future, right? Like you, you can't you can't get future data. You can get past and very very recent, but you can't go past that. So from there, you need to get very very creative. And I learned how to do that at at the agency. And those are some of the trade crafts that we use on my team now. Um, so my my folks are very adapt in different ways. And we, and we can get into that, that I think, differentiate us from different strategic workforce planning uh, teams. After 10 years in the agency, um, I went into consulting um, for Boston Consulting Group. And it was difficult for me to sort of figure out from 10 years in the CIA, what my transferable skills are, because I felt like I could do just about anything, you know, the, the problems we were dealing with and the projects we were working on were very complex. Um, but it that's not an easy case to make to someone that I can now do, you know, you name it, marketing, uh business strategy operations. Um because the the main I guess the main uh skill set you learn at the agency is being very intellectually agile. Um and you're very very Good at figuring out the way your brain works and making sure that you're not um, uh, being fooled, not being tricked. Uh, A lot of study about cognitive bias, things like that. So I figured out the one of the only industries that was hiring folks like myself was consulting. Um, So uh, BCG was my top target and I I caught on there and had a fantastic time. Learned a ton doing business consulting and I found that there's a lot of overlap between intelligence and what I eventually learned was um, company culture uh, people analytics uh, people transformations HR transformations because it's it's still some fundamental questions about understanding a large group of people what makes them tick uh, learning as much as you can about them through data and through other sources and then motivating them somehow either motivating Motivating them to uh, work hard, motivating them to stay in a job, motivating them to do what you want. Motiv- you know, it's essentially understanding them so that you understand what their levers are um, and not in a necessarily manipulative way, but most of the time you're speaking to their motivations and to their um, desires. So it was at BCG and I did several cases in the biopharma realm um, that were cultural transformations. Uh, trying to see how a group of people could approach their work differently through motivation. Uh, And I just, I really enjoyed it. I fell in love with it. It got more into the analytics behind it. um, So that when I was ready to get off the road, get off the consulting road, um, I knew that unbeknownst to me that HR could be a home. For for someone like me, which is not something that I had thought of in the past, and never considered myself um, an HR careerist, so I made some connections and um, landed at Nestle, uh, the food company. Their their national headquarters just outside of Washington DC, and was doing HR strategy, uh, business optimization, and found myself eventually as the as the head of people analytics uh, for Nestle nationwide. Um, and they and, and I, although. I I was new to people analytics in that, in that terminology, um, the fundamentals were very similar to what I was doing in the CIA and, and people that might spook some people, but I don't think it should, because I don't, I don't mean in the sense of surveilling or, you know, manipulating. I mean, in the sense of going very deep to understand what makes a group of people tick. Uh, When I was in the agency, it could have been a military. It could have been a political leader. It could have been, you know, a group of folks that we were trying to help. Um, It's just, it was just very similar, but I brought a lot of outside perspective to it that was I found foreign to the HR community, um, but pretty useful. Uh, they were they had some good they had analytic chops, they had the solutions and the tools down pat. Um, but in some ways they needed some analytic tradecraft. And what I mean by that is they needed to see themselves as people who had views and had opinions and that it was insufficient to just be HRIS, right? Um, to me, HRIS without analytics, um, is not very useful. And to me, the difference is analytics has a view, um, and they answer questions. I used to say at Nestle that the the answer to a question that we get asked is never a number. Even if they ask for a number, the answer is not a number because numbers are misleading. Numbers are insufficient to answer a question. The answer is an action. So if my, my CHRO asks, what's our vacancy? What's our turnover year over year right now? I might g- I will give the number, but then I'll give perspective, give context, and then give some recommended actions based on what we want it to be um, of of you know, of where to go from here, very tactical. And a lot of, I found HR careers were reluctant to do that, uh, even in the analytic community. So I brought a lot of that. We also did a lot of future forecasting, a lot of, um, we don't know the future, but we're gonna take a stab at it, you know? And, and I think moving beyond, oh, I don't have the data for that. Like no one has the data for that. It doesn't mean we don't need the answer, right? Um, and things like that. So that by the t- my time at running people analytics, we went from being a, a, a robust HRIS shop to being um, people strategy, more influential and more looked upon as having a bead on the workforce writ large and having a perspective on where it was, where it was heading and what we should be doing about it. And that's when we started strategic workforce. Planning. It really grew out of that, um, that it was. Hey, if you have such big ideas about the future of the workforce, why don't you run planning as well? Uh, And at this point, I, you know, this was was still new to me. So um, we were inventing it as we went. And I think that's a, a theme, a bit of a theme for me is that I've never defined strategic workforce planning the way it was told to me. Um, or the way it was taught to me, because it was never told or taught to me. Someone just said, "Go do it." So I did it in my own <laughs> my own view, uh, and it's not. And I I know now it's very non traditional. Um, but we we built up strategic workforce planning at Nestle, and we had a robust team. We had, it was a small group of people. We could really only do two plans at once. Um, but it was what I would call traditional workforce planning, but then heavily focused on. Um, bringing together the whole of HR, uh, you know, integrated talent strategy—you could call it—to um, make sure because you you need a division or a group of people to be ready for strategic workforce planning. You you can't take a a group that's um, in a transition or you know needs some other HR um, heavy-duty HR work to get them ready for that. So that was great did that for uh, uh, two and a half years. But at this point, my wife and I, this was the height of the pandemic. And my wife and I were were both working from home uh, on the same couch in our basement, both leading teams of more than 10 people with our uh, five and three-year-old daughters with us. And um, we just decided we needed to move. We we decided that um, we wanted the girls, to have more of the experience we had growing up. We loved D.C. as young adults, as students, and as young professionals. Um, but, you know, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. My wife is from Cleveland. And you can see how that played out. We we decided that we wanted to um, go back to our roots uh, and, and you know, be closer to home. And not not uh, a small part of it was we needed more people around us who we were related to for babysitting. Things like that. So uh, it was about that time that Cleveland Clinic uh, came calling, uh, and it was just a a great connection over Um, LinkedIn. Our deputy chro, uh, who's now my boss, um, they were interested in starting strategic workforce planning from scratch, and I got to give them a lot of credit. Um, They said we want someone from outside of healthcare to build it from scratch. Uh, And we want it to be the best one in healthcare. And I, I was like, and we're in Cleveland, so I said, you know what, this this sounds pretty good to me. Um, So uh, I caught on with Cleveland Clinic uh, in my current role, Um, and that takes us to about you know a year and a half ago, um, where I am now.
2: Well, there's so much to jump into, and I celebrate your journey and not only in a personal way and thanking you for what you've done and contributing to the discipline um, as well as you know protecting our nation. So I'll just say that because that came to mind as you um, shared that early aspect of your story. Uh, you mentioned this term intellectual agility, and I'd like to, before we get into your thoughts on workforce planning and, and, you know, Cleveland Clinic and the future of the discipline, uh, I have long been uh, challenging, for lack of a better word, Uh, professionals, HR leaders uh, who are trying to do people analytics and or workforce planning and or future of work type work, you know, scenario plan, in other words, uh, that we have to... Challenge our existing ways of thinking, uh, particularly if you're in a leadership role and you've made some decisions that have brought us to the current state. Oftentimes, there's a bit of level of uh, ownership, thus defensiveness, uh, because something might be suboptimal in the current state, and you got to make some some shifts. So, can you jump into a little bit or explain intellectual agility to you and why you think it's important in the fields of people analytics and workforce planning?
1: Sure. Um, and, and I agree with, with what you said. That's that's one of the main challenges is teaching folks to not like not play to their job description. Um, not say I, you know, I work in marketing, so I do marketing. I work in sales, so I do sales. I work in HR, so I do HR. I to Think more about what's the challenge and then to take more ownership of how your skill sets can contribute to the to solving the challenge. I don't care what your job title is. Right. To be a a little bit more tenacious and to see the big the big problem, the big picture, the big challenge and say, not what do I have to do or what should I do? What can I do? What's what potentially can I do? Um, This was instilled in me in the government because, uh, you know, it's commonly said we're much smaller than people think uh, in terms of FTEs and in terms of size. So there's nobody else doing that work. When you are on a team doing that type of intelligence analysis or whatever it is in the national security, chances are you're the only person, right? There's not a team of people behind you. So if you can't solve it, it doesn't get solved. Um, So there's there's a sense of extreme ownership, and there's that book, Extreme Ownership, which I think speaks to this a little bit of – there's nobody else to do this. I have to figure out how to do this. And when I went to BCG, it taught me that that actually can exist in the private sector as well. Because BCG consultants do that as well. Well,
2: you're touching on something that's also very, I mean, you said so much that I want to highlight and you know that could take up hours. So I just want to call out a few things. Uh, you mentioned not only the need to have this intellectual agility, but it's a creative discipline we're in. Uh, Many are looking for the roadmap, you know, who's done what there and and with the implication that if you take that blueprint, then it's going to work here, but that's not, Necessarily true. You need, you need to create something that's appropriate for the organization that you're in at that point in time. So even what you've done historically might not be you know, the most appropriate approach. Can you comment on the need for creativity in people analytics and workforce planning?
1: Sure. Um, I think if, if opening up the possibility of creativity surprises people sometimes. Right. You need to first say that one of the things I expect of you is creativity, right? That if you do exactly what you see in your OKRs, that's great, but that's not creativity. And I'm expecting some, I'm hoping for, and I'm expecting some work out of you that I haven't thought of, right? That, That I haven't conceptualized. Because if I thought of everything that you could do as a strategic workforce planner or a people analyst, if I've already in January thought of everything that you can do and you don't add anything to that, I'll be a little disappointed because that's why you're here. Um, I think it's the expectation of, of creativity coupled with um, the support of having their back if, if it doesn't work, right? Like that that, that is necessary. It, those things have to come in tandem uh, of I expect creativity, I expect and I hope for new ideas. If it doesn't work out, you're not going to get, you know, uh, slammed for it. Um, I expect you to learn and try again.
2: Yeah. I, I just, <laughs> I want to hug you for saying that because you're so
1: are <laughs> so. Uh,
2: I think it's a very conservative approach, particularly those who grow, grew up in analytics from, particularly quantitative analytics, and those who might not understand that in this discipline, we're dealing with uncertainty. We're trying to reduce uncertainty. And so going back to your CIA days, and even in consulting, can you speak to probabilistic decision-making and the fact that there's this appetite for, hey, if A exists and we do B, then C is going to result, but that's not the way the world works. if a Exist and we do B. The likelihood of C occurring is going to be you know, to a certain level of confidence. So can you speak to the need for you know dealing with uncertainty and probabilistic decision making?
1: Yeah, and there are like books and books about the topic of conveying uncertainty. Is you know anybody who does this type of work probably steeped in? But my perspective is, if you're trying to teach and educate your customer, you're probably a little off the mark. Our customers, executives, um, in, in the, my agency case, you know, White House, National Security Council, they don't have time to learn, right? You are not a professor. You're not a teacher. You are enabling decision-making. That's really it. They have a decision to make. You have to isolate what that decision is and show them trade-offs. Show them, um, you know, this, uh, as you said, increases the likelihood of, of X and Z, you know, whatever it is. Um, you need to take some things potentially off the table for them. To say, hey, we don't think this is a good idea. With this, you know, with the the indications are showing that, that that would have some unintended consequences. But the best type of stuff I think is opportunity analysis, where you can say, hey, here's an option you might not have thought about that um the workforce is ready for. We've seen some early indications that it could work, whatever that is, hypothetically. Um but you're always focused on what is the decision they have to make. And if you can't isolate the decision that they're trying to make, you're probably not answering the question effectively. If they're just looking to learn, um, I'm not sure that people analytics is, is the is the right spot for that because we should just be more targeted than that. We, we should be um, more specific than that. Um, and I think it's there are cultures, though, where... It can be paralysis by analysis. This is, a you know, a, a common lament, um, especially of scientifically minded uh, cultures like my own, where we need more data, more data, more data. I think also the role of a pe- a good people analytics shop in that regard is to say there is no more data, right? We're, we're talking about the future. We, we're we at a decision point. We're, we're giving you the, the trade-offs and everything we can, but further analysis will not, uh, you know, uh assist anymore
2: and particularly with the current data set and it might be the case where hey there's an absence of data let's go either create it or acquire that data and so hey there's an opportunity to learn better but it's not going to be a snap of the fingers and all of a sudden magically appears. you know there has to be some some planning there right uh there's a couple of things that I want to talk about before we get into, you know, where we're going as a as a discipline. You mentioned at Nestle that you were in people analytics and evolved in workforce planning. You also mentioned that Cleveland Clinic, they wanted to do it from a Greenfield site, it sounds like, and, and create it from scratch. Uh, going back to Nestle... What do you think the bridge is between people analytics and workforce planning is, and more specifically, frankly, for our listeners, is what do you think it should be? Uh, and let me stage this a little bit further. Workforce planning in many organizations, I would go so uh, far to say is in most organizations, lives in talent acquisition. And it's primarily headcount planning. Increasingly, it's talking about skills, but uh, there's a financial orientation, Uh Oftentimes, it doesn't incorporate or design, it doesn't go down to the work level or skill level, which I'm sure we'll get to, you know, at some point in our discussion. But do you believe that I ask a pointed question for a pointed decision like we just talked about? Do you think they should be together? Uh, Do you think they should be overseen by the same leader? Do you think there's health in them being uh, separated? And I know there's a lot of dependencies, but what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so I've, I've worked in it both ways now because at Cleveland Clinic, we have a very robust HRIS and people analytics shop that is separate but adjacent on the other side of this wall. Uh, so we work very closely, but we are separate and there's two different leaders. Whereas Nestle is, um, as said, it was it was just me. Um, I don't want to say there's a right or a wrong way to do it. I don't, you know, I think, yes, you're right that sometimes it's in TA. I have seen it um, several times recently when folks reach out to me that it's a senior HR business partner that's been just tasked with figuring it out, which I think is very challenging for someone with an HR business partner background to just start, like figure it out. Um, I think of all those places, I think people analytics is the best place to put it. If you are not creating a new department, if you are not creating a new department, I believe it should be in people analytics um, because you have, to me, um, one of the big three skills uh, that, that you need to do people analytics and, or uh, strategic workforce planning, and I'll share that. I think it's data acumen, I think it's project management, and it's an entre- entrepreneurial skills or consulting skills, if you like. Um, people analytics has data acumen, which in some ways is the most rare, especially within the HR community. They they are the best data folks, and if you are doing um. If you're doing this type of work, you need to not only leverage internal holdings, but you need to be able to add external data sets. You need to be able to tell a story with data uh, and people analytics uh, is good at that. So I would I would put it in there. If you're not going to make a new department, it should go in people analytics, not in an HR business partnership, not in talent management and not in um, TA, my perspective only. Um But I do think there are some advantages to building a a, a new division. That's what I elected to do here. Um, And as I said, I I hired based on skills. We did skill-based hiring because no one's done it around here very often. And in the Cleveland area, um, you know, it's still a relatively new thing. So I identified those three skills and I hired based on those. And the result was I have no HR careerists in my department. I have 16 people and not one of them is an HR careerist. They come from enterprise analytics, finance, continuous improvement, uh, um, management engineering, uh, from the business, from clinical uh, program management. Uh, I have a few clinicians, actually, uh, medical professionals, but I I don't have any HR careerists. And it's very, I didn't do that intentionally, but it shows you that if you look at it from a skills-based perspective, it is helpful to have folks from the outside to bring new skills into the HR world. Um, to do this type of work. Um, and as we can talk about, you know, in, in, a few minutes, but my perspective is that strategic workforce planning in many ways needs to ignore that it exists within HR. Um, so to not be limited.
2: Well, let's, let's, i want to ask one more question and let's go to that. Um, so I want to highlight a couple of things that you said. Um, And it's happened with people analytics in many organizations, but let's focus for a minute on workforce planning. You have an HR business partner and they've been tasked to do workforce planning, which in most large organizations, I would go so far as to say all large organizations, is an absurd ask (laughs) because they have a full time job and to do workforce planning on the side of your desk. Pretty much means you don't sleep. It also assumes you have the right skills, the right access to data, the right processes within the organization, all these things, which <laughs> no, 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 no. Therefore, it doesn't get done. Then you hear leaders say, Well, we tried that, we have a start and stop. So I'm gonna seed it or put a question out which I think I know the answer. So it's a pretty softball answer. Yeah. But and I'll actually be more assertive in saying that. I believe workforce planning is a separate discipline, and it needs dedicated headcount and, to your point, with dedicated professionals with their requisite skills to not only do the analysis and scenario planning, but to communicate those insights out and, again, to your point, offer you know recommendations. So, as a discipline, particularly in larger enterprises, do you believe workforce planning should be a separate discipline.
1: Uh, absolutely, and I, I also think it should um, it should be separate. It should be its own uh, division. I also think that it should see itself as an enterprise wide uh, strategy shop. It should be right up there with the business strategy shop that does M and A work, with the you know financial planning shop, um, technology and innovation. Um, it is not HR strategy. It is business strategy. It is enterprise strategy. Um, and to do that, you need to be a little bit, if not administratively, mentally separated. Um, obviously, we, we bring our HR colleagues with us because they have a lot of the levers that we pull. They own those levers. Um, but we cannot be limited to their levers. We have to find the levers that exist anywhere in the organization or outside the organization. So we have to, to your point, um, see ourselves as not not outsiders um, but um, as being somewhat limitless in in the the recommendations and the solutions that we pursue i see
2: when we've talked about this in our profile live episode the future of work which to many is an esoteric concept it's kind of a cliche colloquialism whatever you want to say however there are disruptions from automation robotic automation ai uh outsource providers gig economy all, all this stuff that's Impacting how work gets done, which affects yep. the skill profiles of the employees and should ideally inform how you recruit, how you design the org, and, and, and so forth. So, when you talk about workforce planning, you know, what do you see the future of the discipline being? And I know you're doing, like, I often hear and, and echo this is that the future is here, it's just not widely distributed yet. And so I see you as a leading practice organization right. because you are thinking about the future of work and designing accordingly. So can you speak to your, what you're doing there to accommodate these different ways in which work gets done?
1: Yeah, I think the lines between strategic workforce planning and future of work, uh, as you described it, are already blurring um, to the point where maybe we just call it one thing. Eventually, uh, my perspective is that we are right on the, the edge of being a future of work team uh, at Cleveland. We are able to do that because we have some advantages, though. We we do tremendous what I would call tactical and operational workforce planning, uh, meaning we have lots of good data about productivity and employee usage and all those things. So I can be strategic. I can go to – I quantify that as two to three years out at least um, because I have very good operational and tactical workforce planning done by other. Teams. If you don't have that, that's a common pitfall where strategic workforce planning becomes today workforce planning, right? It just doesn't look out far enough. Because I have the advantage, we're thinking years and years in the future. Um, and so when we do that, uh, we come to some conclusions that I think speak to what you're saying, which is um, it's not technology disruption. It, in my mind, it is um, the the change the. The um, type and pace of change is such that if we do not catch up, uh, we'll have mission failure, you know, in a, in a pretty straightforward way. Uh, the pandemic exacerbated this trend, but it did not cause it. Um, and therefore, the cessation of the pandemic will not stop it. Um, that there are simply too many tasks that our organizations need to complete, and humans are not infinite we've been treating them for a long long time in several industries as if it was an unlimited resource people hiring more and more people who want to do the work will do it for what we want to pay them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Those two lines have crossed and they're getting farther and farther apart. So to me, future of work is not a nice to have. It's not a, you know, theoretical exercise. It's, um, it's not even that long term. I mean, we're seeing it already. I, my, healthcare my industry is really suffering with staffing. It's a, it's a healthcare staffing crisis uh, and others are, are following suit. Um, if we don't look at the fundamental level of tasks, of, of actually getting down to what does this task need to be and ask ourselves questions like, does a human need to do it? Does it need to be done in an office? Does it need to be done during the day? Does it need to be done? All those fundamental questions. Um, if if you're doing that, you're doing future of work analysis in, in in my view, especially if you're then taking action based on it, right? Just sitting around and talking about it is, is useful. But what my team focuses on is taking roles as you know you and I have talked about, tearing them down to the studs. What 50 things does this role need to accomplish? And then we have no preconceived notions about how those 50 things get done. Right. So you got to think about automation. You have to think about human augmentation. You have to think about does this need to keep happening, this task? Um, That's future of work planning. If you're not doing it, you're just adding more and more stuff onto a workforce that is not going to have the supply that you need and um one day it's just going to
2: break yeah. I, I, I celebrate what you're saying so much and it's getting all excited not only for you <laughs> uh, but for the future of our discipline because when you talk about breaking work down to the studs and exploring how it's going to get done uh and yeah we've talked about this before you know it, who's in the room uh, operations, IT, facilities, you know, obviously uh, HR. So we, as the workforce planning lead, and as a workforce planning function, emerge as the facilitator of these discussions and and the insight generation, and in turn the actions. Can you speak about you know who's in the room and, and some of the nature, not only of the discussions but of the actions that take as a result?
1: Yeah, we purposefully shrink and expand the room, as so to speak at several points during a planning engagement, um, purposefully. Um, at the beginning, we have a big room where we meet with, uh, we think in terms of roles in clinical spaces right now. So let's say that we're thinking about a a respiratory therapist within our respiratory institute, for example. So we want to learn as much as fast as possible about the history the data, the day-to-day we go to Gemba. We go watch them. We do like a continuous improvement style stuff. My people go and actually see them in the clinical spaces. That's big room. we look at the finances. we look at all that. That's big room. And then we shrink the room for a bit. And then it's just my team. Um, and then we're looking at what external holdings do we have. We forecast new technology. Um, we, get, we get down in there and we do the forecasts of what supply and demand will be. What are the external forces, macro indicators, things like that. That's a small room because that if you don't shrink that room, that process goes on forever. It becomes more of a chatty brainstorming that is just sort of, you know, so we we do that forecasting. That's a small room. And then we raise the room up a little bit to meet with the leaders and the SMEs to isolate. Here's the problem statement. Three years from now, here's your capacity gap. Three years from now, here are the technologies that will be available to replicate tasks for you. Here are the opportunities that we think are there through hiring, retention, technology, and skill building that um, we can dial up or we can change to close that capacity gap for, because in healthcare right now, it's all about capacity gaps. We don't have a lot of capacity surpluses. Um, And if if we isolate, that's the problem statement, good. Then we expand the room again. Um, to include we have external partners all over the clinic, and this is all credit to my executive sponsors um, that that we have their support, but that's finance strategy i t supply chain procurement um, uh, government relations because regulatory issues are a big deal for us um, continuous improvement uh, everybody under the sun and they're at, at senior levels directors um, and what we do is we you know go through opportunities and we do you know the classic consulting um tactic of opportunity sizing what's going to give us the biggest bang for our buck in terms of f t e s right like how do we get more tasks done um it's not an exercise at this point. i hope folks listening hear this the way i mean it it's not an exercise in employee engagement it's not an exercise in um you know uh wellness it's an exercise in creating capacity uh, for the workforce. But we believe that that will be an outcome of our work, that wellness will increase, that employee engagement will, co- will increase because their, their lifestyles at work will become better. They'll be less stressed. Staffing will become better. Um, so that's, that's the big group. They help us work through those things. So that by the time we shrink it back down and activate the plan, we have buy-in from the people who have to take action. If, if we have a um, you know let's say a, a retention bonus idea finance is with us right and payroll knows about it and comp knows how it's going to work so it's it's like a in and out in and out i think is how you'd call it our who's in the room throughout the course of our engagements which lasts several months
2: oh. uh, i'm just like <laughs> I, I really want to shout what we just shared from the mountaintops. i mean that sounds kind of corny but <laughs> run with the verse cuz Uh, I talk about the four C's of workforce planning, and and I don't want to share this to invite, you know, debate or or whatever, but I I do want to highlight one of those four words. Those four are capacity, capability, cost, and cost construct. And so capacity is... at least in the people analytics world and largely in the workforce planning world has been a blind spot. Um, There's so much talk around skills and that is an appropriate discussion. But to your point, not only have we taken this infinite, uh, abundance approach with, with people, uh, AKA talent. Uh, we've also had this assumption in many cases that we'll just throw work at them and hope they figure it out and, you know, act like the work that falls on the floor is okay. You know, it's like we can and arguably we should be aware of the work that falls on the floor so we can either do something with it and give it to somebody else, automate it or what have you, or, you know, hire more or change, you know, make a conscious decision, in other words. So, yeah, I want to comment on that before I uh, ask my next question.
1: Just really briefly, I would say you can let work fall on the floor or you can identify the work that doesn't need to be done and throw it on the floor. And that's much that that's strategy. That's, That's Michael Porter right there. Right. Strategy is making yourself different. It's figuring out what not to do. So instead of throwing so much stuff and tasks at your people until like you say stuff falls on the floor look at the stuff on the table and say those are 10 things we don't need to do actively and purposefully take take tasks away that's what makes a an agile organization
2: yeah i remember uh, the CHO of uh, dignity health uh, Dale robinson talked about his mission is to give people time back <laughs> And that's yeah. effectively what I'm hearing from you is like let's at least a key aspect of it is and so this notion of capacity, I think, particularly given the measurement systems that we have and the data in other words that we have, we can have better visibility into that. So it's now a conscious decision leaders are making to ignore that. And that in my view, you know, to be very uh it's it's irresponsible, in, in my view. I mean, we need to be doing this work. Um, I you know, I want to be card instead of time uh, for our listeners and, and for you and, and for you know, the purpose of this podcast. We probably have to do some more profile lives and uh, and keep the discussion going. Uh, but I want to get to this uh, idea. It's in sixth seventh grade. My dad gave me a three by five card and he wrote manage yourself or someone else will and and so here you are in hr and you are taking the bull by the horns you are creating something that needs to be in place yet not many HR organizations are, are doing that. And so there might be others who are going down this road. So my pointed question might be obvious, is that what would be your advice to HR leaders who are going to commission this work. Do you feel that if it's not going to get done, is it going to get done by someone else? And if so, is it going to be suboptimal because they don't have the subject matter expertise or visibility into the workforce data?
1: Yeah. If it, similar to the three by five card, um, workforce planning is happening all over an organization, but it's being done in pockets and sometimes it's being done well. And sometimes it's being done poorly. Um, a lot of what I do and my team does is we collect where workforce planning is already being done pretty well across our organization, strategic workforce planning is being done. They don't call it that, but some of our more advanced divisions are they're looking years into the future and saying, who do we need to hire? What skills? I'm like, great. I want to export what you're doing to other places. So I would say um, if, if you're not taking, if you're not aligning strategic workforce planning across your organization, you're letting good ideas just fall. Uh, in your organization. You're not spreading innovative ideas that are happening somewhere in your organization. They might not be happening in HR. They might be happening in the business. They might be happening um, wherever, but there are some smart people in your organization who are thinking into the future. Um, One of the big jobs is to find those people and align their processes so that you can get the biggest bang for your buck. Uh, But I think the biggest... The most common um, tripping point that I see is that when HR divisions want to make strategic workforce planning because everybody else has one or because they see it a lot on LinkedIn and, you know, it's at all the conferences, like I need one of those, um, but haven't put a lot of thought into why um, and what they want it to do and how it will change things. We like to say here that strategic workforce planning does not provide fixes, it provides changes. The difference there is a fix is is momentary, instant, and one time, like replacing a tire, a flat tire. A change is more fundamental, requires support, and might be permanent. Instead of driving, you take the bus. That's a change versus a fix. Um, if you want strategic workforce planning, you have to be ready for changes. Because if they're doing their job well, they're going to change stuff. at um, a fundamental level, business processes, money. Um, and, you know, hiring, all sorts of stuff. You need to be open to that or else you're going to have them make, you know, uh, chase their tails. In, in, in you know, so I would say to those leaders, you want strategic workforce planning. Why? What what are you willing to open yourself up to in terms of change? Because they can't do strategic workforce planning light. I, I, I'm not sure that that does as good of a job to do it. In the margins, if you want to tackle a couple of roles and go really deep, that might work. But if you want enterprise-wide strategic workforce planning, the CEO needs to know about it. The CHRO needs to champion it, or else it just will be ineffective. And then you'll say, oh, SWP doesn't work. Like, it does. You just need to swing a lot bigger.
2: Yeah, there's about we have about 10 minutes maybe uh, a little bit north of that and i want to get to a couple topics and if there's things that you want to share i want to make sure you have space uh, to do this yeah. uh, scenario planning and we t- touched on it earlier with probabilistic decision making uh, but the idea that and it's the term that i use and i'd be interested in your thoughts uh, the term that is is continuous work transformation So the idea that we put a workforce plan in and has a predictive element, and oh, my prediction was so great—like, wait a minute—I don't think that's a good thing (laughs) because you know, if it came true, then no change happened in the interim. So, what what was the use of the um, the exercise? So, number one, scenario planning. Number two, and I'm bundling this question uh, for a reason: is historically many have looked at the data with in their enterprise at a certain point of time. Now we have these tools that are looking at external labor market. And I know you you're know, bring in you know, some of those insights. So if you can speak to that, because that helps with the scenario planning. It helps position your organization relative to the broader you know, marketplace. So can you speak to that scenario planning and our need in workforce planning to not only be smart about our you know, existing workforce, but really being smart buyers of these data assets that we bring into the
0: discussion?
1: Yep. Um, it's a great question. I, and this touches upon old agent CIA stuff for me because it's, um, predictions don't work. Um, we don't use the word prediction on, on this team. We say forecast, but to me, scenario planning is forecasting um, because, and this this is more about strategic planning in general, not just workforce planning, but in general, to me, strategy is choice. There, I, I, my ears always perk up when I hear somebody say, be ready for the future as if they're a passenger along the way. And that, if they say, I want to be ready for what's coming, that suggests like a passivity and a, and a reactiveness that, uh, that would worry me. Our CEO, has a, uh, constantly talks about inventing the future. And to me, that's exactly right. You have to choose what you want your future to be as an organization. What scenario is most appealing to you, has the best trade-offs, has the, best, uh, the fewest unintended consequences? What future uh, steady state or future endpoint or whatever you want to call it, do you want your organization to be in? Then scenario plan that and do other scenarios along the way select it and then make it true, right? That is strategy to me. It's not about, we need to be ready for automation as if the automation God is going to just wave a wand and automate all your processes. Like anyone who does that work knows that's absurd. Automation takes a ton of energy and resources and administrative focus and st- and corporate focus to do, to automate one thing, you know, much less everything. So, If you're if you're saying things like, I need to be ready for this eventuality, or I need to, you know, I want to not be behind, I'd say flip that. What what analytics can do and what external data can do is tell is give you options and then but you have to pick. And then and then that's when strategy becomes execution, right? That's when strategy turns to OKRs, is we have a vision now of what future is the most appealing to us. Let's make it true. Um, let's, let's invent it. I I believe strongly in that, that the people who do great strategy are inventing a future. They are not being ready for a future that they're not involved in, you know, so to speak. Uh, so because of that, and I, I think I know why you coupled these, these questions, your internal data sets will not, uh, tell you much that you don't already know. Right. Um, you've been looking at your own HRIS data for years. You've been looking your own financials for years on a daily basis um you have probably gleaned most of what you're going to see out of that there's no hidden gems not a lot of hidden gems in there you need to bring some external uh viewpoints external data and then also you've built up some assumptions uh that might be wrong or looking at your data over years you might be sort of trapped by your data um so when i started this program i'm some of the first investments I made, even before I hired people, um, was uh, external market data um, from Talent, talent Neuron uh, and, crucially, uh, technology forecasting from Fathom, uh, and they're, they're still our partners. And uh, that's critical to me that I need to challenge the assumptions that have existed here for a while. And not just here. It's not a, a clinic thing, but anywhere that you need to challenge the assumptions and build those scenarios for leaders so that they can feel more ownership over the future, that they're not a passenger. Um, our leaders are drivers. Gosh.
2: <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, I did good. It again going to be an awkward, awkward time to get together in person. Uh, no, I, I, The reason I would say that is, you know, I am um, – Yeah, I am a little bit frustrated uh, having been in the discipline for as long as I have uh, because there have been so many start and stops. And there has been a lack of courage, fortitude, uh, creativity, clarity of purpose. Um, And I don't mean that as a criticism. I mean that... Have a compassionate observation, and I think you are creating a—I'll call it—a leading practice. You know, it's, it's something that other organizations aspire to, inside and outside of, of healthcare. I'm sorry, okay, outside and inside of healthcare. Um, let me just go with beyond healthcare. <laughs> but the um, idea that we are going to be victims of what's coming. Uh, needs to be uprooted and the idea that hey we do have more agency more ownership of what we create and the idea that we are creating something new we need the proper resources to do that and sometimes people sometimes it's the insights from these tools that you mentioned but ultimately they have to be put on a canvas and made sense of, and then, you know, communicated, put on a wall just to run with that art creativity analogy. So when you have those external data sets and internal data sets and putting them together, what does the deliverable look like? Do, are you turning on you know, Fathom and Talent Neuron for your internal customers, or is that primarily for your team? And you're you're putting, to, you're packaging it and then communicating it out. Yeah.
1: It's heavily packaged. Um, we, we have some internal partners that that we share, you know, the data with, or we would get accounts for talent neuron. We share fully with our talent acquisition partners, um, because they're in it on a daily basis doing sourcing, uh, fathom, we keep a little bit closer to the vest, um, because of the sensitivity around automating automation. Um, and that just people that can make people nervous if, if it's not uh, put in the right context. Um, but the, the package that what we call the final deliverable is is meant to be uh, as close to turnkey as possible. We are not. And this is a learning I've made over uh, several years of doing this now is no organization can ingest more than about seven or eight tasks, you know, new th- new things to do. I think it's really more like four. Uh, but um, no organization can get 50 new things to do. Uh, that just doesn't work. So, and you'll, you'll lose them. And it also means that you're not doing that opportunity sizing effectively. You need to pick the most effective actions um, that build that capacity, prepare you for, uh, to, to build your future. Um, but then you need to have a cutoff point and you need to not admire all your great ideas. You need to, to pick the best ones. So, what we try to do is really get it down to definitely less than 10 actions. Uh, to be taken and they get the full, they get the research, the forecasting, the opportunity sizing, all of that. We create what we call the shelf of ideas that we so did not select. Um, but the analysis behind it, would they work? Why didn't we select them in case they need to be revisited in the future? So we don't lose that history, but we give them about eight things. Um, and then action plans, responsible party, uh, resources needed, um, you know, uh, Timeline, things like that. Stakeholders, we do not project management, but we what I like to say is we we take them the first ten yards of project management. Um, we get the project started, and over time, since we're doing these repeatedly, we can. Do, I want to be able to do eight projects simultaneously across my team, eight simultaneous SWPs. Over time, we'll get so good at these type of actions, we'll say, "Oh, you want to onboard a new technology." here's the person, here's the form, here's the process and everything. It can be very sort of, we can standardize things. Um, but what we are trying to do, and I want to get us even better at, is isolating things to stop. That that fall to the floor uh, question is, we also want to isolate their workforce planning um, efforts that we, in coordination with them, advocate that they stop doing. You know Whether it's A certain, you know, engagement program, a retention thing, hiring a new technology where like you're not you're just not going to get the bang for your buck. So if we're giving them eight things to do, hopefully we give them eight things to stop doing.
2: And pretty turnkey. I got a couple more questions, and we'll wrap. And yeah, again, I look forward to future profile lives because there's so many questions that we we haven't talked about: diversity, equity, inclusion, and the value proposition for workforce planning around that. Um, Yeah, obviously, when we talk about engagement and well-being, and uh, the idea of that, hey, you have. An undersupply of uh, talent in the open market. So, when they come on board, you know, are you creating experience that's going to help them stay and, and be valued and appreciated? And so, there's an element of that in all this. So, you know, with that being said, you know, where do you see workforce planning going at Cleveland Clinic? And if you want to take it to in general, you know, what you see as leading practice companies, you know, what are they doing? What would you encourage others to be doing as well?
1: Yeah. Um, I have. I mean, we're, we're very ambitious here at the clinic. We want to be the best at everything we do um, in, in healthcare. So, um, you know, I, I want first to make sure that we have the very best strategic workforce planning in our industry, polish it, um, make sure that we are getting the right type of insights, uh, that we are not just creating band-aids, but that we are fundamentally um, positioning ourselves to win. I think, uh, and there's research on this, that the healthcare workforce crisis um, may last the remainder of my career. Uh, you know, it's, it's at least probably 10 years before we get um, the pipeline back where it needs to be, if we get the pipeline back where it needs to be. So uh, I want to make sure that we are fundamentally winning that talent market, not just surviving. Um, it, when we're able to do that, then we're going to be able to do enterprise-wide um, strategic workforce planning, right? Not just by institute, by division, by department, but to, to see what the commonalities are, to see what the enterprise, enterprise-wide strategic workforce plan can be, and that could be very powerful. That's where we change from, you know, SWP can create dozens or hundreds of FTEs worth of capacity, which we've already been able to do, to thousands, tens of thousands, and cost avoidance in the tens of millions. That's where I want to be so that strategic workforce planning, um, you know, is, is a business fundamental, uh, because it's, it's seen as not just a cost center. Um, as I like to say, saving money doesn't always save money. Uh, and this is one of those things where investing in workforce planning and doing it right, uh, will do amazing things I think for, for the bottom lines of, of organizations.
2: And with that, I'm going to sneak in another question because uh, do you envision partnering with educational institutions and you know, nurturing early stage talent or early career talent?
1: Yeah. Yeah. that's. Been, we have some exciting programs here uh, at the clinic where we are identifying um, roles that do not require a degree, uh, roles that we can start recruiting very early. Uh, we are very engaged in the Cleveland community, uh, in the Northeast Ohio community. So we're trying to make sure that, you know, anyone who wants to work for the clinic, we can have a role for them. Uh, and it, it works because we are so large. We do a little bit of everything. Um, but yes, I think that needs to be something that we look at as is college, is a college degree a fundamental need as much as it you would think it is looking at job descriptions. And I think, no, uh, it. it on the job training, demonstration of skills. Um, I think there's we might be going from you know higher uh, higher for skill to higher for will. Like do you want to learn this? Are you dedicated? We I mean, we're headed that way in in some roles, and I think that that's uh, um, only gonna get more intense.
2: Yes, I, I, I celebrate that so much uh, because if somebody has the skills, there's an implication that they actually want to do that work and learn to ask them. And you know, given the changing nature of work, if they have the willingness, ability to learn and take action on that learning, aka learning agility, then yeah, you know, bring them on board and train them up if they got the. You know, and Jim Collins, you likely know in good degree, which is now twenty plus years old. Um, when I first read it, I opened up the book and like on page 13 or 14 goes well if you're trying to engage people you're wasting your time and I'm like Jim man I thought we were on the same page you know, uh, the trick is to hire and engage people in the first place and do your best not to piss them off i like I mean obviously the words are a little bit right, different right, but right, you know, right. that was the sentiment so yeah I, I absolutely love that because I too am hopeful that more organizations will embrace that because um, you know as soon as you get a job description it ages you know Immediately. So, here here I got. um, So, my question, um, and again, I'm probably going to sneak a couple more in, so I apologize and we'll we'll wrap. Um, But if if you're speaking to a CHRO, head of operations, CEO, um, head of IT, you know, all of whom are affecting the future of work, thinking about, you know, the future of work, what would be your invitation into workforce planning, how would you advise them to uh, commission the work and and build a team? Would it be hire AJ? (laughs) What what would would you say to them? I
1: I would advise that you do need to start with a vision. Um, There is no playbook, I don't think, for strategic workforce planning that works in even most organizations, much less all organizations. You do need to put some thought into why are you doing this uh, and what do you want to get out of it, as I mentioned, and you might need some help to do that. So either talking to an expert, uh, talking to, you know, perhaps a firm that, that does this a lot um, to refine the vision of what do you want to get out of it before you start putting it in somebody's OKR, before you start assigning people to have that targeted discussion of what works well. In your workforce planning, are you doing tactical, which to me is today and tomorrow, operational, which is next month, next quarter, and strategic, which is, you know, two years down the road? Are you doing any of those? Are you, you know, um, why or why not? Do you really want and need a two-year lookout? I would say most places that have, if you have a comp, a complex workforce that is highly skilled or highly dispersed, you need SWP. It, that's just to me a reality at this point. It's not a should we. It's a how. Um, But I think investing that time up front to say, what am I as the CHRO, CEO, CGO, whatever it is, what amount of change am I willing to champion? Am I willing to redesign the way that we recruit, retain, bring on new tech, um, talk to our employees? Am I willing for that amount of change to happen? If so, great, then you can go pretty big and you can fundamentally change things. But if you're not, be honest about that up front and reduce your scope and focus a handful of roles.
2: Okay, and so so what's the... What's the profile? Let's say, okay, I'm a leader. I want this. I need this. Um, AJ has a job. Can't get <laughs> And So what's the profile of the individual that I want to come in and lead this? And the follow-on question is somewhat obvious, is that if I want to get into this field, how do I present myself and make it happen?
1: Yeah, two, two good questions. The first one is that it's tough. There's not a lot of – we're still a small community, I think uh you know and you you know this better than i do you're a champion of the community it's it's still a relatively small group of people that do this full time professionally at a high level uh and it's it's only going to grow um but it's not there yet where you can you know like a city even a big city like cleveland there's you know i don't know a handful of us that that live here and and do this professionally so um you might not be able to find the individual who does this at a high level. You know, I, I think there are firms that do this very well. You know, I work with Deloitte. I think they do a good job. Um, I'm a BCG alum, so I obviously think BCG does this well. Um, but it's it will be hard to hire this person. And I also am a champion of the idea of this person is not a director. This person is not a senior manager. If you really are looking for someone to do this work, they are... VP, executive director, whatever it is, they should report. They should go really close to reporting to the CHRO, if not one step away, um, because they're going to have to have some really tough conversations and you need someone that has the, the, um, you know, the presence to, to do that and the support. So that tough to find that person, um, that that'll take some doing. Um, if you are, if you are interested in getting into this line of work, uh, It's, I think it's a pretty good time because none of my, uh, hires have done this previously. I had to teach all of them how to do it in our way. And now they're teaching me how to make it better, which is great. Um, so coming from people analytics is, is a, is obviously a good way to do it. But I would say, again, my three skills, uh, data acumen, project management skills. So that's, you know, stakeholder management, keeping things on track, um, you know, the traditional project management, and then what I like to call entrepreneurial skills, also called consulting skills, if you like, is um, we call ourselves a startup, and we are we're a startup within a hundred-year-old company. We have to sell ourselves. We have to um, you know speak to the needs of our clients. We need to uh, be agile, but we also need to be tenacious. We need to keep moving. We need to keep going faster all those things. Um, and consulting skills is a lot about ingesting everybody's, uh, opinions, viewpoints, um, criticisms and plotting a way forward with them saying, okay, I'm hearing what you're saying. I think there's three things we need to do. That is some, those are consulting skills and it's not easy. Um, uh, but if you, if you don't have those, build those three, um, that's, that's what you need to succeed in in this work, I think. But, luckily there is no pedigree. I don't think for a strategic workforce planning leader at this point. And I hope there never is. Um, cause I don't think I'd fit it first of all, but, uh, it, you know, I, that's to me, the recipe for success.
2: Yeah. Well, AJ, yeah, you, every time we talk, I get fired up and inspired. So, you know, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for, you know, doing the cutting edge work. And you, yeah, I know it's not a, playbook or blueprint or, or whatever, but you're certainly providing some ideas uh, that I believe are a leading practice that need to be observed, learned from, and you know, adopted in many cases. And so, yeah, thank you for sharing and uh, doing what you do. Any closing comments as we wrap?
1: No, I, I, I'm so happy to be here. I always love talking to you as well. You're the, um, you know, the, the the, uh, cheerleader of, of our work. And I, I really appreciate it. And I, people do too. And, you know, please keep it up. Uh, I, I really like this community. It's a, still a relatively small community of people that do this, but I like the idea of sharing, um, best practices and, and things like that. So I just, I appreciate the time to talk to you and to, and to those folks doing this, that are struggling. Um, it does work. Uh, you know it's stick with it because it has to. We we don't have an option but to do this work. Um, so that therefore to me we don't have an option but to do it well. So I uh, appreciate the time, Al. Thanks for the invite.
2: Yeah well AJ again thank you for sharing. You do well and uh, look forward to seeing you in person hopefully uh, before too long. We have to come to uh, Cleveland and do a profound connect there and you know, have a little gathering so we'll, oh, that'd be great that happen
1: that'll be great. Yeah. All
2: right. You do well. Thank,
1: thank you. For All right.
0: <laughs> thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about today's guest, go to pfau.net. You'll be able to see links to the bio as well as to the video of today's program. You'll also have the chance to support this podcast and other shows that we do by becoming a Pafau community member. You can also donate if you choose. What will be helpful to support Pfau, the People Data for Good Movement, and me will be to share this episode with friends, co-workers, and others who might find it valuable. Uh, finally, for updates on upcoming episodes, shows, and events, please subscribe to our newsletter at pafau.net. At the bottom, you can also see our social media presence. So please subscribe to our company page on LinkedIn, follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and instagram we're active as can be and we want to provide this content to you that is timely relevant and actionable so again thank you for listening today and hope to see you soon i also want to give a shout out to jenna dern malaz el sheik and sarah sparnan who without them this show would not happen and now go out and make some great things happen